Welcome back to episode three of our series on advanced cardiac resuscitation. I'm Ginger Locke and I'm here with Kevin Joles, who's the division chief of EMS for Lawrence Douglas County Fire and Medical in Lawrence, Kansas, and Joe Powell, who's the emergency medical services coordinator for the Rialto Fire Department in Rialto, California. They've experienced tremendous success and I wanna hear how they think this might be reproducible in other areas. Joe, Kevin, can you speak to that? Well, well th thank you, Ginger. I, um, I think reproducibility is, is really the magic in the whole process. Um, I think we talked about before that, you know, it, it, McDonald's is special because it's reproducible, not because they produce a hamburger or fries, right? But because the hamburger in China is the same as the hamburger in California and it's reproducible. And so, uh, at, uh, at Chief Joel's uh, agency in Lawrence Douglas, Kansas. They've, uh, they've reproduced the system. We've also you know, reproduced it in Naperville and numerous other departments. So uh, I think the magic is that reproducibility, right? That franchisability of the, of the process. Yeah, I agree. The, um, you do need certain items or certain, certain uh, portions of the toolkit in order to accomplish it, but it's uh, anywhere that can be done. We have an agency that's close to us that is a little more rural, so they have to just come up with different ways and uh, own some of the responsibilities that we're able to share because we do have more personnel on scene. But in the rural communities, they just kind of have to double time it. I, I, I feel for them because they're working quite a bit harder than us and, and, and producing more work um, in, in a time that is of the essence. When looking through the list of tools, those key takeaways, one of the things I saw was that you're calling a stretcher a tool of advanced cardiac resuscitation. And I know that patient positioning you know, has long been understood, different positions can confer different clinical benefits, but I'd never really thought of the stretcher as anything more than a moving device. It was a total reframe for me. What do you do with the stretcher that has clinical implications? This is the, the, my most favorite tool in the toolbox. And of course, as I say that, um, people are going to say, well, what about CPR? CPR is obviously the most important um, procedure that you can do for the patient during cardiac arrest. However, this being a tool goes beyond cardiac arrest, in my opinion. Uh, we use it a couple different ways to our advantage. And, but when we started having these conversations with um, people all over the country and really all over the world, um, We've, we've titled the, the cot or the stretcher or the pram, as some, some may call it. Um, mm -hmm. It's my, my favorite tool. And, and what I mean by that is, is I've been in the fire service for nearly 25 years. And although I've not been a paramedic the whole time, I've laid in my share of, of filth, uh, for lack of a better word. Or I've been in a ditch on the side of the road, tending to a patient that needs to be intubated or an, an airway being needing to be managed. And, and laying there on my stomach, and as I've gotten older, um, things don't work, you know, don't bend the way that they used to be, um, as good as they used to be, I should say, and being able to use that stretcher as a tool. So we'll place that patient onto the stretcher um, in the cardiac arrest, and we can use it as, as an ergonomic aid, being able to raise the patient off the ground, we'll be able to, to do CPR standing up, um, as at a good quality level, to, depending on the height of the patient, we have power load cots so that we're able to raise them and lower them uh, to an ergonomic, pleasing height for the uh, for the providers. And then, how we do what we do is we also raise the head during CPR, and, and we do that um, using the rescue pod. We have the rescue pod, whether it's a supraglottic airway, whether it's on the bag valve mask, um, this impedance threshold device. What that does is that 
reduces endocranial pressure while increasing cerebral perfusion pressures, and which aids in the cardiac arrest. Um, if we haven't low, if we haven't intubated the patient, we can use that cot as the tool. Um, you don't have to have when when we raise the head to 30 degrees, we only do that using the while we're using the auto pulse. We're not raising the head if we're doing manual CPR. But before we raise their head to 30 degrees and we intubate them, if we are going to intubate them, we don't have to have it at 30 degrees. We can lower the cot down a little bit and it's a little bit fe more feasible for the deliverer of the, the whoever's going to intubate or place the airway. It makes it a little easier on them to have to bend over. It lets the anatomy fall into place um, far better to where when we're laying on the ground, we're not having to wrench on their jaw. We're not having to lift their head up off the ground. It just makes it easier for us to, to be able to insert the, the advanced airway. Thanks, Kevin. The next tool in the bundle of care is delayed defibrillation. But to get there, you have some important thoughts about how capnography informs the decision to defibrillate. Joe, we can glean so much from capnography. In what way are you using capnography to guide resuscitation decisions like defibrillation? We use capnography for a number of things. We use it to determine death. We use it to determine our ventilatory rate. Right, we should be ventilating not on a number, but on a saturation and entitled CO2 number. We should we use it to uh, determine ROSC. So why do we use it to determine ROSC? Because we don't want to stop compressions to determine ROSC. We want to use entitled CO2. And by the way, caveat is that we also use blood pressure to determine ROSC. We put a blood pressure cup on our patients. We determine their baseline with the auto pulse, and then when the entitled CO2 starts trending up and spikes, saturations get better we recycled the blood pressure and the blood pressure will be different than what the auto pulse was. And then you go, hey, that's the patient's blood pressure. And then we will also let the auto pulse run for another two minutes or so, one to two minutes to prime the heart. We also use entitled CO2 to determine our defibrillation choice. So I'm 100% for early defibrillation. We know early defibrillation works. The earlier you defibrillate, the better. The question is, um, and, and let me put it this way, um, my, uh, my CQI guy, Kevin Dearden, will always say that uh, early defibrillation is early until it isn't, <laughs> which is obvious, except it's not obvious, right? How often do we get there early? We don't. By the time you go through, someone's found down, they get on the phone, they call dispatch, they verify their address, right? Dispatch decides who's going to go. It goes over to our primary radio dispatcher. They dispatch the units. They get out the door in realistically two, three minutes, five, seven minutes to the home, and then you can defibrillate, right? Well, no, you got to grab your equipment out of the unit. You got to get to the patient. You have to put the monitor on them and decide they're in V-fib and then defibrillate, and we are 12, 15 minutes out. We are not early. The heart is hypoxic. It is acidotic and it is not ready to receive electrical energy. So we're not gonna defibrillate that heart, right? We've all done this, we've all done this, and Kevin can attest how many times we've defibrillated a patient into asystole and never got them back. We can't do medicine like that anymore. We've gotta make good decisions on when we're gonna defibrillate, when the, when the heart is no longer hypoxic, no longer acidotic, when it's ready. And so we use entitled CO2 of 20 or above to determine whether or not we're gonna defibrillate. If they're under 20, we don't defibrillate V-fib. Right now, we do defibrillate witness VFib. If we witness it, we defibrillate it right then, and we do defibrillate VTAC, but we don't defibrillate VFib, find VFib under 20. That will just put them into asystole. And when you look at the numbers, 
So when we in the past have defibrillated a patient with an anti-level CO2 of under 20, our ROS rate is 9%, nine. When we defibrillate a patient with an anti-level CO2 of over 20, our ROS rate is 73%. So I, we get a lot of pushback on this. And a lot of people say, you can't do that. That's not what ACLS says. That's not what American Heart says. And I don't really care what they say. The bottom line is we got to save our patients in this city. We've got to do medicine, not based on what some book says. We got to do medicine based on what's going to be effective for our patients. I'm only going to defibrillate oxygenated proper pH hearts. And that will get me that Roth number. Now let's hear from Dr. Holly about the science of using the stretcher and autopulse to perform heads up CPR and how that improves cerebral perfusion pressure. Well, thank you again. Uh, heads up CPR is incredibly exciting. Uh, I, I think let's start with a, a brief explanation of what we think the physiology is there. And uh, it's obviously related a bit to uh, earlier discussions we've had around uh, pressure uh, manipulation of uh, the intrathoracic pressure. But I think one thing that we've definitely noticed is that we're very good at generating sort of the push out of the chest. We're much less effective at generating the return flow from primarily the head uh, back into the chest. And so several interesting studies in uh, animals initially to sort of ascertain uh, whether or not we can do something to make that better uh, were actually profoundly interesting. And, and what we noted with those is if we uh, compare putting the head below the chest or head down CPR uh, compared to supine CPR, what we noticed was that the intracranial pressures rose dramatically, flows in the head were much worse, uh, and that the, the thought process behind that was that we had significant issues with the venous uh, outflow of the head. Literally with the head down, we backed up blood into the head. We resulted in, that resulted in uh, increasing the pressure inside the head, which is basically just resistance to flow of uh, the oxygenated blood that we're trying to get in there. So if we compare that to head up CPR, where we raise the head uh, uh, slightly above the, the heart uh, during high quality CPR, what we noticed was exactly the opposite. The intracranial pressure dropped significantly. The flow uh, out of the head improved dramatically. Cardiac output actually stayed the same or went up with the idea here that improving the flow back into the chest did a better job of filling the heart and resulted in better cardiac output during CPR. So the idea behind uh, heads up CPR, we've uh, uh, taken to the uh, to the lab again to look at that. What we've noticed in an instrumented cadaver model that I was lucky enough to be part of um, was exactly the same findings in that raising the head during uh, high quality CPR uh, dramatically improves uh, flows in, into the head. It dramatically reduces intracranial pressure, which as I said earlier is resistance to flow. Uh, and therefore results in much better perfusion, not only of the brain, but of the heart as well. So the, the findings are pretty impressive. Uh, current clinical trials are uh, underway. I think there are some important caveats though to understand around heads up CPR. 
And, and, and the first is to appreciate that standard manual CPR does not generate enough flow to go uphill into the head. So if you're utilizing manual CPR, please do not use heads up CPR. You will significantly worsen patient uh, outcomes and reduce blood flow into the head in those patients. Ideally, you need a mechanical CPR device and you absolutely need to have the ITD attached uh, during that uh, CPR so that you can improve that uh, outcome and maximize the pressure manipulation inside the chest. Uh, if you are able to do those things, then uh, raising the head after a couple of minutes of priming with the patient's supine, uh, slowly to um, a, a small amount is definitely beneficial uh, in the lab, and I think we're gonna see that in the field setting as well. So uh, an excellent bit of physiology, it's important to do it right because we do have the potential to make things worse if we don't do it right. So please pay attention to those important details. Thank you, Dr. Holly, and thanks again for joining us as we discuss more tools of advanced cardiac resuscitation. We wanna hear your questions, and in episode five, we'll be live in answering those send those questions to acr at zoll.com. We'll see you soon.